0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike Disabedo, and today we are going to talk about government and interwoven board members, because I'm sitting here both maddeningly anxious and distracted awaiting the results of the U.S. election. So I thought, what a better time than now to discuss how the tendencies of different leaders shape how our economy is run. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. I'm in a self-indulgent hell today and I cannot escape thinking about how leaders and how their interconnectivity or relationships with other leaders shapes how our society functions. We see this in public office all the time. A lot of the work done in politics is at the local level, but the leader of a government often sets the overall tone and direction of the country's political agenda. They also hold a lot of the capital that local jurisdictions require. It's the same with corporate boards. Employees do most of the work to keep the company running, but the board helps set the overall tone and capital direction of that company. They make decisions on the long-term company strategy, the hiring and firing, and the support of executives, how much those executives get paid, and how a company reports on its earnings. And a big part of what is studied in corporate governance and how boards are managed is the Culture of the board and how that changes how well companies run so today I want to discuss two impacts of boards culture its membership skill set and the interconnectivity of its members with other company boards And since I thirst for the politic, I thought what I would do is I would look at an industry that perfectly molds the public and private sectors together, and that is defense contractors. And there's this one company that's a defense contractor that is an excellent case study in the symbiosis that I was just talking about. That's Raytheon. And it just so happens that my colleague Harlan Tufford just finished some research on Raytheon's board, so I decided to call him up. And what I first wanted to understand was, A, who is on the board of Raytheon, and B, how do those members affect how the company is run in the long term?
1: Four of of Raytheon's board members are former generals or admirals. Uh, Another director, Marshall Larson, is a West Point graduate. So that's a third of the board there uh, who are former service persons, most of them very high-ranking career soldiers. You also have Margaret O'Sullivan, who's currently an academic but was formerly a national security expert in the U.S. government. Um, and all of this reflects the, the importance of the US government, and in particular the, the US military and the, its intelligence agencies as customers of, of the company. One really interesting way that it impacts the management of the company, in particular the board's oversight of the company, the Raytheon has a, a fairly unique committee called the Special Activities Committee. And the principal duty of this committee is to assist the board with overseeing Raytheon's classified business activities. So, you know, these are the, the secret weapons that they're developing for for the Department of Defense. Um, each member of this committee has to obtain security clearances uh, required from the government to access the data. And if you look at the membership of this committee, it's the CEO, the executive chair, the special advisor of the CEO, who happens to be a director, and then all four of the senior military directors and Margaret O'Sullivan, the former National Security Council. So this is a committee staffed with insiders and with people who have strong personal connections to the defense establishment. And they're dealing with data and information that that other directors may not be be privy to and that kind of structure has the real potential to be a kind of star chamber uh on the board
0: and that star chamber is a bit nerve-wracking for investors that value transparency but having people with deep insider knowledge has its benefits for raytheon it has people that know the field the services how a government contract is established the priorities of governments and their budget decision making process and if you kind of were trying to assess how a board's company is run, you might look at Raytheon and think this sort of expertise is vital for their survival.
1: Exactly. If you, I mean, if you look at it this way, it's like having the, 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 the United States is, is the, the largest customer of, of Raytheon, plain and simple. And people who have experience... Uh, buying and and using Raytheon's products from the perspective of that customer, that's invaluable market intelligence. Um, And the, the connections that they have can be valuable if used appropriately.
0: It seems so because the public sector connections that board members at Raytheon have are not unique to the company. Harlan looked at all the companies in the MSCI USA index and ranked them based on board members who were once public officials or military officials, and 7 of the top 10 companies were defense contractors. So it seems pretty obvious that board member skill sets are something that companies will face even the possibility of corruption to get. But expertise is relatively easy to see. What about a board member's relationships or the interconnectivity of a board member? How do you find out what those are and do they even matter when it comes to how a company runs itself? Well, it just so happens that interconnectivity has an even more jargony name in the financial sector. It's something called board interlocking. Board interlocking is the participation of board members on one or more board. And lately, more and more corporate governance analysts have been saying that interlocking is one of the main drivers of how a company is managed. According to a 2018 study by Paolo Roberto Dalcuna and Marcio Roberto Piccoli, board interlocking is one of the main drivers in spreading management and governance practices through the sharing of knowledge and expertise, which can be reflected in a company's earnings quality. Now, I'm not going to explain what a company's earnings quality is, I'll get to that in a second. But basically, what you want to understand is what these two are saying is that. The way a company reports on itself is highly dependent on who or what is influencing its board, and who is influencing its board is not as straightforward as it might seem.
1: From my experience, working with with governance committees and directors who are interested in continuous governance improvement, a lot of what goes on in a governance committee meeting will will end up being kind of a swap meet where directors will talk about what's worked, what hasn't worked, how they've solved challenges on the other boards they serve on. And and so you get this cross-pollination of, of concepts and experiments. And sometimes uh, it, well, something that worked at one board won't work at another because of the structures or even just because of the personalities involved. Um but it's that, it's that continuous effort to uh, improve the board's effectiveness that can make the mark of a great uh, governance committee chair.
0: And let's say you want to understand if you had a great governance committee chair or, or if you had someone that was kind of spreading some bad stuff in your corporate board. An investor would have to look at something that's called social network analysis. Social network analysis is taking individuals mapping their connectivity and getting a set of statistics that are used to understand how board members relationship with another board member affects a company's decision making process. And so I kind of want to explore that idea more because it sounds a bit weird and interconnected and what what do I even mean by that? So to do that, I decided to call up a friend of the pod, Matt Muscardi, the CEO of Free Float Media and co-host of Business Pants podcast because he's been exploring the topic and I asked if he could break down that 2018 study for me and basically the Concept in general?
2: So it, it basically was about earnings quality and um, network centrality for directors, meaning how interconnected are individual directors and does earnings quality get affected by that, you know, where they are and where they sit in a network? And the short answer of the study was um, when a board member has been on boards that sort of have aggressive or negative earnings quality, right? Like they have a penchant for earnings uh, earnings management, uh, which is massaging earnings so that they look a certain way and maybe negatively affecting earnings quality, your ability to trust those earnings they tend to bring that experience with them on the boards that they that they sit on. So um it's like a trend. think of it as think of it as a virus, right? Like you have this idea of earnings management and People get infected with that idea and they sit on many boards and they bring that to the the boards that they're on.
0: That experience matters with earnings because the reporting of company earnings are more of an art than a science. The board of a company, I'll be cute and call them the company's leaders, have a lot of discretion over how earnings are reported at the company level. And they can use a myriad of legal accounting conventions to make a plus sign look like a minus sign or whatever and this is called aggressive accounting now the question is can you use social network analysis to see which directors might be bringing more aggressive accounting practices to a company it turns out you sort of can
2: so i took all the board members from the msci Acqui imi basically every board member in the tradable universe for the most part and i mapped them to each other Uh, and ran this sort of statistical analysis behind interconnectivity and centrality for those board members. And what you see when you actually separate them into these sort of tribes, and there's a, there's a statistical thing called modularity that you use to sort of, um, create these communities. Nobody really cares about what that's called, but, but effectively what you see is, so for one particular tribe, okay, um. They they tend to have nearly one and a half times more restatements than um your average board member of, you know, the MSCI world.
0: Real quick, what happens with restatements is a company uses those aggressive accounting practices and says, Oh, wait a minute We might have been a wee bit too aggressive and we need to issue a correction here and we're going to restate our earnings because we might have made a material mistake. Now,
2: it's hard to say that that's like a behavioral attribute, but that's a, that's kind of a marker of risk, right? Like why does this tribe, why does everybody from this tribe of which there are a a thousand people in this tribe, you know, why do they restate their financials one and a half times more than the average board member? And it may be a couple of companies, it may be a couple of outliers, but really what it tells you is I need to investigate who these people are and whether or not this is transmittable. Whether or not like these people are responsible or transmitting poor behavioral attributes or cultural attributes that lead to restatements or whether it's an
0: an anomaly. It just gives you that place to start. And the reason restatements are such an interesting case study for our pod today and in general is because they are public documents that are used as a way to assess a company's financial health but are riddled with these subjective decisions made in a seemingly objective format. And those different subjective decisions can be easily transferred from one board To another. And when you understand that, you can kind of understand how the interconnectivity of a board might affect how the board is actually run. The best example of this is actually like
2: my neighbor up the street who was an accountant and worked for a major corporation. Um, They were going to dig up their parking lot um, and lay down new blacktop. And they had to go all the way up to the comptroller of the company, basically the CFO, and ask, is this a capital improvement? Meaning, are we improving the value of this asset? Or is this maintenance? We're just replacing the blacktop because we need to maintain it. Those are separate accounting buckets. And the answer that he got was, if you dig more than four inches into the ground, we'll call it a capital improvement. Now, there's no study that says... Four inches into the ground is a capital improvement. That's total make-believe, right? But that's the assumption. You have to make a choice somewhere about what bucket to put this money in. And when you add those little assumptions up over the course of a company, over the course of a year, over the course of a decade, you're talking about a massive amount of sort of potentially not bad but misleading numbers or numbers that are sort of fudged to look a certain way or or, or assumptions that you could challenge very very easily there's no math or science behind it and that is transmissible right like that CFO can go sit on a board and say, "Back at the company I used to work for, we made a, a you know a, we made a, a rule that four inches into the ground was a capital improvement, and when the bo- when someone the CEO is asking the board, how should we think of this as a major capital improvement or as an expense?" that idea might ring out that's how those ideas are
0: transmissible so today we went through some important aspects of leadership when it comes to public boards there are other attributes that are important there's having board independence having a gender diverse board or racially diverse board but all these attributes are kind of bucketed within culture raytheon's board might be filled with ex-public officials and ex-military officials but do those officials bring with them a culture of restraint and legality or are they corrupt When they have to write down a massive weapons project because it isn't going the way they want it, how are they going to do that? How do they decide what to restate and what not? And are they getting advice from someone who did it well at one company or did it aggressively and made a lot of mistakes? It is these sorts of questions that need to be asked of a leader because, as we are seeing now, someone can buck the system for the negative actively through, say, threatening a fascist takeover of a company Or they can do it by bringing a culture to a company that is in its own way a possibly corrosive force. Or they can use the opportunity to set up systems that are for the company's good and will lead to long-term resilience in the future. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Harlan and Matt Muscardi for discussing this week's news with an ESG twist. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It always helps. And don't forget to check out Matt's podcast, Business Pants. You can get it anywhere you get this podcast. And have a great rest of the week. I hope you're staying relatively stress-free with this presidential election, even though I know that's impossible. And I'll talk to you next week.
2: The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc's subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ- product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.